We're going to continue in our study in the life of David. We're going to skip a few chapters. We were in chapter 25 uh, before. We're going to skip along here to chapter 30. And so you can turn there as, uh, as I kind of catch you up on some things and maybe highlight some things in those chapters that we're skipping along. If you want to know more about those chapters and be part of that, we're studying 1 Samuel in uh, the Bible study on Wednesday nights, and uh, we get a little more in-depth there. I don't think uh, the Wednesday night Bible study is ever going to catch up to what we're doing here on Sunday because we keep on skipping ahead. But uh, a good time of studying and uh, finding a little bit more about uh, how God is, is working through David's life and, and some good lessons in each of those chapters. The last few chapters of uh, 1 Samuel switch between David and Saul, and, and David's temporary unfaithfulness caused him to go and live in Philistia. Really, temporary unfaithfulness. He, he decided that he would be safer among the enemy than among Saul because of all the times that he was being attacked. And Achish, the king of Gath, assigned David and his followers the city of Ziklag. Great name, Ziklag. And David lived there for about 16 months and carried out raids against Israel's enemies. So he's kind of like a double agent uh, among the enemies and working uh, for Israel during that time, unbeknownst of Saul, uh, uh, to Saul and, and Israel during that time as well, but uh, able to be uh, uh, battling against the, the enemies of, of Israel. And eventually Achish commanded David and his men to join him in battle against Israel. Now there's the twist going on. And uh, the covenant, those covenant people of God, and, and God providentially worked through the commanders of Philistia so that Achish was forced to send David back to Ziklag. It turned out that those commanders didn't really trust David very much. Uh, how do you know he's going to fight against Israel? Let's send him back. We don't need him up here. Something might go wrong. Send him on back home. And so that's what happened. Chapter 3 tells us then what happened as he went back to Ziklag. Uh, when David and his men arrived there. And that's where we come then in chapter 30, and we open it up there and find out what's going to happen. Now, Amos, one of the prophets that we read in, in God's Word, Amos once used a graphic sermon illustration in uh, Amos chapter 5, verse 19, to give the Israelites at that time an idea of what the day of the Lord would be like for them, especially uh, for them as unrepentant people. Uh, on, on the wrong side of God. And so uh, he pictures, Amos pictures a, a man fleeing from an, a, a lion only to meet a bear. And then he runs from the bear, finally reaches and piles into his house, leans and panting and, 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 and heaving and relieved. He leans up against the wall and then a snake bites him. <laughs> and so he from a lion to a bear to the snake that finally gets him. And he thought he had reached safety only to discover he had failed to see his enemy slithering along the top of the wall. And it must have seemed like that uh, to David and his men in this chapter, chapter 30. They had just escaped from the trap of having to fight with Philistia against Israel, thanks to God's mercy and a Philistine suspicion going on. And how relieved they must have been to start out for Ziklag that morning, even a, a multi-day 60-mile journey from Aphek to, to Ziklag is bearable when such a burden has been lifted. 
finally heading on home, going to see family. But when they arrived home, the snake bites. They think they've been out of trouble. They finally get to a safe place. They find that there's no town. There's no families. Still another blow in the tally of David's sufferings as you continue to rack them up. Now let's take a look here in chapter 30. Going to section by section. We'll read a few verses and look at these, and then we'll, we'll move through this chapter in that way. And we'll discover, I trust, some great truths in God's Word. Truths, I trust, that will guide you in your very present situation. And I, that's my prayer, is that God's Word would speak to your heart and meet the need that's in your life. So the first six verses, we're going to see here that, obviously, God's servant is overwhelmed. God's servant is overwhelmed, which, uh, unfortunately, is not uh, uh, unnew to us, right? We also, too, become very overwhelmed at times. But let's, let's look at this, these first six verses here uh, and find out what this is all about. So David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam, of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of, of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him, which one, excuse me, each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. So it was about a 60-mile journey from Aphak to Ziklag, and it had taken David and his men about three days to travel that 60-mile journey uh, from those two, two towns. And as they approached Ziklag, their stomachs must have turned and churned as they saw off in the distance uh, the, the smoke rising up into the sky. Uh, I thought one day when I was driving from uh, Safeway, heading on down here on 122nd and 129th, obviously, I saw smoke in the distance from Safeway this direction. And I thought, oh, what's going on? And it was, it was billowing black smoke. I thought that better not be the church, <laughs> so or or maybe the Fisher's home. You know, somewhere is over in this area. And as I drove closer to the church, it was fine. It was the house up here on the hill on the side that burned down. You probably remember that. And that, but I was thinking, oh no! And here, David and his men, also too, off in the distance. There's the city that they're going to. There's there are their families. There's home, and it's up in smoke. Just think about that. You can't just go right there all of a sudden. It takes you a while to get there, and I would imagine I would start picking up speed a little bit more, get a little more concerned, want to get there as quick as I could. What is going on? This is David's and, and, the, and his men's situation here. And once they arrived in Ziklag, they discovered that the city had been burned. No bodies were there. Maybe there was some temporary relief, knowing that at least no one was dead. But then they realized that a fate worse than death had come upon their wives and sons and daughters, knowing that they were being taken into slavery. That and alone would be horrific. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. 
That's a lot of weeping. Maybe you've been at that moment before where you are just worn out. You've wept. You try to cry. There are no more tears. And you are just so exhausted. That's what we find here in verse 4. And if things were not bad enough for him, David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in spirit from the, from the loss of their, their sons and daughters. So David's distress just, just seemed to intensify over time. David had been on the run from Saul for over seven years. Saul had tried to kill David 16 times. David was ordered to go and fight against his own people, the Israelites. Talk about all this stress coming up for him, piling on and piling on. But God wonderfully extracted him from that situation of fighting against the Israelites. And just when David thought things might improve, they got worse. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis, in his book on 1 Samuel, writes these words about this situation. He says, Here is a sobering and disturbing picture for God's people. Are there not times when you think it cannot get any worse? And 1 Samuel 30 says, Yes, it can. There are times when you, can, when you conclude that your present trouble is the last straw. You simply cannot take any more. Then comes Ziklag, the last straw after the last straw. Sometimes you are tempted to add another line to Psalm 30, verse 5, where it says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning, and disaster takes, uh, uh, happens and strikes next afternoon. <laughs> but the first six verses of this chapter have a disturbing beginning. God's special servant, David, his anointed king-to-be, is overwhelmed and troubled beyond belief. And, you know, he's not alone. Uh, This could be the situation for any of God's servants. These six verses imply that your distresses and your troubles could intensify. There's some good news for you. But God's Word doesn't hold back or make things all rosy. As a Lord's servant, you may be overwhelmed with troubles. You may receive more than you think you can even handle. But God, in His Word, tells you this. He doesn't hide it from you. You can trust a God like that. You can depend on a Scripture that tells you the hard truth. Difficulties will come. And when Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't reduce it to some small print that you couldn't read or some footnote that you'd forget. He had it out there in the open. It shouldn't be a surprise to you. You will be going through difficulties. It will happen. For David, it was out of the frying pan into the fire and then out of the fire back into the frying pan. (laughs) Could things get any worse? Becky and I were over at Brianna's soccer game on a Saturday evening up in Vancouver, Washington. It was cold. Now, I remember playing soccer in wintertime on a winter league before, and being out on the field is so much different than being on the sideline. (laughs) Becky and I were in our chairs sitting on the sideline. We were bundled up, and it was, it seemed like if it rained, it would be snowing. But we were out there, and, and it was Actually, the, the wind wasn't blowing, so we're like, well, thank the Lord for that. And we're sitting there, 
Becky's father is sitting over next to me in his chair, and we're all bundled up watching. Even Becky was bundled up to the point where she didn't move her head. She was moving her eyes back and forth and watching, watching, watching the, the game go on, and she wanted to stay in her hood and everything. And so we were bundled up doing that, and <laughs> her dad leans over to me and said, well, at least it ain't raining. I looked at him, I said, stop, <laughs> don't say that. And sure enough, the wind started kicking up towards the end of the game, and here come the big old black clouds coming our way. And I just looked at him and said, you had to say something, didn't you? You had to say something. Yes, it could get worse. It was cold. It was then windy. And then it started to rain. Towards the end, we were able to get out of there before it got too bad. But yes, things could get worse. But do you feel that sometimes? Do you feel that things cannot get any worse? And then what happens? They get worse. And you go, wow, I... I didn't think they could. All God's people experience times of overwhelming trouble. And I don't want to leave you with that kind of news only. Let me move on to these rest of these verses here. Verses 6 through 10, the second part of verse 6. We'll find here, and this is the key area, I think, that we need to latch on to. We need to remember, maybe even memorize verse 6, the second part of verse 6. It says, uh, in this in portion of Scripture, we're going to see that God's strength is sufficient. God's strength is sufficient. Verse 6, But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David sa- said to Abiathar the priest, or Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor Valley, where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley. But David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. So we'll stop there for a moment. David was in significant distress. In addition to his own sorrow, he faced the rebellion of his men, and who knows how many votes there were to stone him? Who wants all in favor to stone David because he got us in this situation? I. His soldiers were in significant distress as well. Their home had been burned to the ground. Their families had been captured. And everything else was gone too. And who had they to blame? Pointed to David. He's the guy. He's the one who got us in this mess. He's the one who took us on these raids. He's the one who poked the tiger. We shouldn't have done that. We should have left some people back at Ziklag. Because if we're fighting with the, for the Philistines, sure enough, their enemies are going to come around and attack one of their cities. It's all David's fault. He's to blame in this. So what would David have to do then? What do you do when you experience distress in your life where all around you is just against you? Everything seems to be against you. What do you do when you experience financial ruin? What do you do when you experience a crippling accident or a destroyed relationship or a life-threatening illness? Where do you go? What do you do? Let me mention some things that you should not do. That's probably something that might resound in your ears because maybe you've tried some of these things. First, do not try to lean on your own understanding or strength. Don't try to get through it on your own. Not one of us has enough understanding or strength to deal with significant distress that comes into our lives. We might think, oh, we can handle this. Uh, we've gotten through it before. We can take care of this. It, it doesn't turn out good. It never does. 
and probably ringing in your ears is Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him and, or acknowledge Him, and he will, he will make your path straight. Don't lean on your own understanding in this. That's the first thing you should not do. And remember, put the not in this, the not do. Now, the second thing you should not do when you experience distress is to turn to religion. Now, don't misunderstand me. Don't turn to religion. Suddenly you decide to attend worship service, maybe. You go through distress. You, you're, i got to get to church. I haven't been to church. I, I guess I better get to church. Or maybe you give money, or you read your Bible, or you say prayers because you want to earn God's favor. Lord, get me out of this situation. What do I need to do? I'll go to church more. I'll pray more. I'll read your word more. Just get me out of this. And you become religious. The Lord is not a genie you rub out of a bottle in times of trouble in order to make you feel better. It doesn't work that way. Religion simply does not work. Now, we kind of witnessed that uh, after the 9-11 attacks. And those who, who turned to religion only moved on after a time. They felt better then, and they were all right, able to move on on their own. Don't turn to religion. Uh, a third thing, do not let go emotionally. Now, this is what David and his men did in verse 4. They raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. And again, don't misunderstand me here. Um, it's not wrong in and of itself to weep, to cry, uh, when you have no more strength and you're crying, because that's it's just overwhelming, and that's the reaction some of you have. And often it is good to weep, but weeping alone does not address significant distress. You'd be crying and crying and crying if you want to take care of the situation, if you want to, that's not going to do it. That will probably help in that time. It might feel good to just sit down and cry, and that's all right. But if you want to move on and continue on, that is not going to be the help. God didn't allow Samuel to be emotionally paralyzed by mourning for Saul after God rejected him as king. God moved Samuel forward to his next, next task. Because Samuel was pretty distraught about how Saul was now going to be removed, removed as king. God rejected him. But God said, Samuel, you need to get moving on. <laughs> We've got work to do. You have to anoint the next king. The correct response, so here's, here's the do this moment. The correct response to significant distress in our lives is to do what David did. Look back in verse 6, the second part of that. It says, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David turned to the Lord his God. And yes, David had faltered. Yes, David had a temporary lack of faith. But when his back was against the wall, when he was in significant distress, he went to his heavenly Father and strengthened himself in the Lord. So, what does that look like? What does it look like to strengthen ourselves in the Lord? How do you do that? I think these uh, verses provide some insight into that. It implies that you strengthen yourself in God by remembering the promises and the affirmations of His Word. The promises that relate to you and the affirmations about His character, who God is. You know, we need to be reminded of that sometimes, especially when we're going through difficult times and we're thinking God's the, 
the God of wrath, and he's going to come down upon us. Why is all this happening? Oh, but God is also a God of love. He cares for you. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that when we go through those difficulties. Back in chapter 23, Jonathan finds David where he's hiding from Saul and strengthens his hand in God. Jonathan assured David that, the hand, it says in verse 17 of chapter 23, the hand of Saul, my father, will never find you, but you will reign over Israel. So Jonathan, in, in time of, of David's need, reaffirmed and, re, and, and emphasized the promise of the kingdom that God had already made to David. And that's what strengthens so if David strengthened himself in the Lord his God, he must have recalled God's promise and remembered that God keeps his promises. You know, many times God's people strengthen themselves by recalling God's promises. I'm sure you've been there as well, too. Uh, Neil's always talking to me about where, what he's reading in, in uh, uh, Charles Stanley's devotional calendar. And I love it. And he, and, and, and he goes to that, and you shared many times with me about how it was so appropriate, that verse or that devotional thought that encouraged you through that day. You know, and, and also the um, Jesus Calling book as well is a great one too. You've got your own devotional books as well, I'm sure, that you go to and you go, wow, this really speaks and encourages me. It speaks to me today and helps me remember who God is and remember God's promises. Another way we can strengthen ourselves in God is by using our access to His presence. Using the access to His presence. Look at what David did. He had Abiathar the priest bring him the ephod. In the Old Testament, as you might know, the ephod was used sometimes by leaders to seek the will of God. And that is what David did here. God not only answered David, but gave him an assurance that he would succeed. And so David and his men set out to find their families. You know, today we don't have Abiathar the priest around, and I don't think anybody has much of an ephod to use. But we do have a priest that is greater than Abiathar. Hebrews 4, verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We've got a great high priest we can go to. And since we have such a priest, in verse 16 of Hebrews 4, says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can go to God. We can go to Jesus before Him and have access to Him. We may, we may not get precise answers to our questions, but we will find Grace to help us, as the Scripture says. Grace to help us, which we usually need more than answers. We just need the grace to get through. So go to your priest, Jesus Christ, and the access to Him. When you, when you are distressed, go to God. He will provide you with strength to face the situation in which you find yourself. Now, let's look at verses 11 through 15 here as we move on. Uh, we see a very interesting moment in this story. And we'll see here that God's providence is essential. God's providence is essential in all of this. Look with me in verses 11 through 15. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat. 
part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for, these, for three days and three nights. David asked him, Who do you belong to? Where do you come from? He said, I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Kirathites, some territory belonging to Judah, and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. Hmm. And then David asked him, Can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, Swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them. <laughs> Smart guy. <laughs> but David and his men head further south. He presses on with 400 men. And think about it. He really doesn't know exactly where he's going, who he's chasing, but he knows he needs to go, and he's moving forward with these men. But with 400 men, though, because 200 remain back at uh, the Besar Valley, they're too exhausted to move on. And we could assume that David knows he's after the Milikites, but that te the text doesn't tell us uh, anything like that. Groups who made raids and burned towns didn't leave calling cards. But unless David had, had word from some survivor, he was more likely unsure of who, he had carried off, uh, who had carried off the families of Ziklag. And even if David had known that it was the Milikites, how do you begin to find a nomadic group like that as they travel all over the place, moving everywhere? So all these questions kind of put these verses into context, into perspective. When David and his men find this Egyptian, God's provision, God's providence in this situation. You need to understand that this discovery is an absolute necessity if David and his men are to locate these culprits. God's providence is essential in all of this, in your times of struggle. After giving this starving and dehydrated Egyptian food and water, he told them what had happened at Ziklag, and he told them that the Amalekites had raided Ziklag and burned it. And when they, were, then, uh, when they were returning to the place from which they came, he fell ill and his master left him behind. And David and his men had, had no idea who had taken their families or where their families had been taken, but God providentially caused an Egyptian, this servant of the, of the Milikite leader, to fall and then be left behind so that David could find him. So David asked him to take them to these raiders, and, and after negotiating for his safety, the Egyptian agreed to do so. But coming across the, this discarded Egyptian is the whole key for David's recovery operation. If this didn't happen, he would still be wandering the desert around trying to find where these people took their families. How important he becomes, this Egyptian becomes, making it, making it possible for the Lord to fulfill his assurances to David that he gave in verse 8. You will find this group. You will overtake them. Seems like such a little providence, finding, finding such a, you know, this puny Egyptian. But keep in mind, keep in mind that little providences make big differences. When God provides in your life in that way, don't overlook them. In God's providence in your life. Little did that Amalekite master realize that the one he had discarded three days ago would prove his undoing as well. The God's providence is essential in turning tragedy to triumph. 
So let us believe that God will providentially order circumstances for His glory and our ultimate good during your situation of strife, during your troubled times, during your times of being overwhelmed. Trust that God will provide for you in that. And now let's look at verses 16 to 25, and we'll see here that God's grace is decisive. God's grace is decisive. Uh, follow along with me here in these verses. He said, He led David down, and there they were scattered all over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away, except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing young or old, boy or girl, plunder, or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, This is David's plunder. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the, at the Beeser Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, Because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. And David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share, of the, man, the share of the man who, who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. And David made this a statute and an ordinance for Israel from that day to this. We'll stop there at that verse. So David and his men found the Amalekites and they attacked them. 400 uh, Amalekites fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing. Everything was there. God's promises came through. He found everything, recovered everything back. Nothing was missing. And he also captured the flocks and herds. And then David and his men came to the Beaser Valley where they had left those 200 men who couldn't continue on and been too exhausted to chase down those Amalekites. And now about, about those other 400 men that went with David, do you hear their attitudes about what was going on? Yeah, these guys, as if you look back in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, in verse 2, it tells us that these weren't the best kind of people. <laughs> you wouldn't find them in Sunday school class. <laughs> You'd find them somewhere, somewhere else. But we soon discover in, uh, in, in chapter 30 here in verse 22 how mean and nasty they are. They're, they're using the excuse of justice. We did all the work. They hardly did anything. So we should get all the plunder and uh, they can take their wives and children. But we should get everything else because it's, it's, the, right, it's the just thing, right? But they kind of used that justice to, to hide their greed. They wanted everything. They suggest that the 200 who stayed behind can take all the, you know, the wives and family members, but they won't get any of the plunder the 400 fought for. And maybe it wasn't so much greed that drove them. Maybe it was really only selfishness and hatred going on. But did you see how David responded in this? Really key. He used a combination of things. He, 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 he used a combination of warmth. As you look in verse 23, he says, No, my brothers, you must not do that. He, he, he appealed to them as brothers, please do not do that. And then he used an argument. And in the uh, second part of verse 23, you know, 
He has protected us and delivered, the Lord has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. So a little argument in that. And then he used a little skepticism in it as well when he said, who will listen to what you say? And then also too in in verse 24, he, he used a little authority going on here and told them that the share of the men who stayed with the spies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. And then David, in verse 25, made a rule that both combatant and non-combatant were to share the spoil equally. That was going to be the statute and the rule from here on. You think about it, if the bench players on a championship team, they receive rings too. Not just the people who play on a championship team. <laughs> Everyone receives the rings. And this kind of response explains how David could effectively command such a gang of characters. These 400 guys, I guess they were pretty rotten. But if they're on your side, then they're going to do some rotten things against your enemies. But you see, the wicked and worthless guys believed that it it was because of their own skill, their own ability, that they were able to recover this loot. But David knew that it was by God's grace that he had given it into their hands. God had preserved David and his men and given the Amalekites into their hand. The difference between grace and works is the difference between worship and idolatry. We need to watch out for that. The difference between grace and works is the difference between worship and idolatry. The one who believes that all, the, all that he has is the Lord's gift finds himself repeatedly on his knees, adoring and, and thanking and praising God. But if we don't grasp grace, we fall into idolatry because that is the unavoidable result of self-sufficiency. We've done it on our own. We can do it again. Look at what I have. Look what I did. Look what I can do. Then we walk around talking about the plunder we have recovered. A works-oriented view says that we get blessing for ourselves. We've done it. A grace-oriented view says that we receive God's blessing only by His grace. What we have, who we are, it's by God's grace that we have these things. We need to realize that everything we have is given by God's grace. It will be a humbling thing to acknowledge, but it is the only thing that will keep you from worshiping yourself. Then the last few verses here in this chapter, we see God's generosity is shared. God's generosity is shared. Verses 26 through 31. When David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, Here's a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. David sent it to those who were in Bethel, and a whole bunch of other places and towns that I'm not even going to read because you'll have fun with me as I stumble through those. But anyway, all those in, in all the other places where he and his men had roamed. And when David, David did this, it was an interesting moment. Interesting moment here as he was giving these uh, the gifts to these other places and people. And when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And some commentators suggest that David shared his spoil for political purposes. He was trying to sweeten the elders to make them like him. But, you know, not a bad idea, uh, considering what David has gone through the past seven years. He probably wants some friends on his side. But David rightly understood that he was the rich recipient 
of God's grace and God's mercy and God's gifts. He didn't consider it his own. And so in gratitude to God, he simply wanted to share God's blessing to him with others. He wanted to share God's generosity with others. Now you think about it, some of those other cities that are mentioned here were probably also raided by those Amalekites. And maybe some of them were, were wondering if they, their things were ever going to be recovered. But if you, you are a Christian, you, and especially if God has blessed you by turning tragedy to triumph, you need to share with others what God has done in your life. You, you may be the, the encouragement in the life of an, of an overwhelmed and troubled soul. And God wants to use you to bring encouragement to that person. Maybe you are the overwhelmed and troubled soul. Maybe you are going through those things and you're thinking, could it get any worse? You're not going to say it because <laughs> you know if you do, it might happen. But what difficulty or distress are you currently facing? What are you going through? It might not be huge, humongous, and epic, but it's still a stressor in your life. What are you going through today? Consider David's experience and find hope. Ask God for the strength you need in the midst of your difficulty. Focus on God's promises and His character expressed throughout Scripture. Remember who God is from His Word. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And when they do, as they do, I want to share with you from uh, Jesus Calling yesterday's entry as far as the devotional and uh, read through that. And I trust that it can be encouraging to you, maybe challenging as well. Jesus Calling, Sarah Young writes this book, and it's uh, in the viewpoint of like God is speaking to us. February 22nd, just yesterday, says, You need me every moment. Your awareness of your constant need for me is your greatest strength. Your neediness, properly handled, is a link to my presence. However, there are pitfalls that you must be on guard against. Self-pity, self-preoccupation, giving up. Your inadequacy presents you with a continual choice. Deep dependence on me or despair. The emptiness you feel within will be filled either with problems or with my presence. Make me central in your consciousness by praying continually, simple, short prayers flowing out of the present moment. Use my name liberally to remind you of my presence. Keep on asking, and you will receive, so that your gladness may be full and complete. And also in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, might be ringing in your ears, it is in mine. That helps us also, too, to understand and kind of wraps this chapter 30 up pretty well. But the Lord says to Paul in the midst of his hardship, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul responds by saying, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I, will, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Are you there? Are you at that moment where you're thinking, this, is, this, this can't get any worse? Remember that through your weaknesses, 
God will become strong within you as you continue to practice his presence. Remember who he is. Be reminded from his word what he's all about. If you're going through some difficulty right now, you need a reminder of that. Maybe you want to come and pray, whatever it is. Maybe you want to give that difficulty over to the Lord. I just trust that you'll just obey God and how he's prompting you. And if you just need to spend some time praying, the altar's open and you can come pray.